there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands Still. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. In the summer of 2018, the search and discovery startup Merlin Burroughs began scouring dozens of satellite images looking for structural anomalies in the Mediterranean Sea. They sought evidence of the lost city of Atlantis. Critics insist the search for Atlantis is a fool's errand. Dozens of expeditions across hundreds of years have tried and failed to find the fabled city. Some even suspect that Atlantis never existed at all. But Merlin Burroughs had a track record of finding lost treasures that others missed, and they had technology on their side. After weeks of surveying, the searchers spotted something strange in the bogs of Doñana National Park in the south of Spain. There were dozens of hidden circular structures all over the park. These were perfect concentric circles of land with seawater between them. This was near the Strait of Gibraltar, which in ancient times was known as the Pillars of Heracles. It was also the only known landmass that Plato mentions in his ancient account of the city of Atlantis. The location worked. The description matched. After 2,500 years of speculation and searching, had Atlantis finally been found? In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries on the Parcast Network. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of Parcast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on Atlantis, the mysterious city that vanished from the face of the Earth over 10,000 years ago. Today, we'll take a look at some of the major historical theories and developments in the Atlantis mystery. 
Next week, we'll take a look at contemporary searches for the real-life location of Atlantis, and we'll weigh in on the likelihood of the Atlantis theories discussed this week. In the thousands of years since Atlantis was believed to have existed, countless stories and theories have developed to explain its origins, whereabouts, and ultimate demise. But most of these theories tend to share a few basic attributes. First, the majority of these stories describe Atlantis as an island city that existed a long time ago. That's important, because in most of these accounts, Atlantis was destroyed by a tsunami, flood, or other natural disaster related to water. Second, Atlantis is almost always associated with advanced technology that is remarkable for its historic age. This could be extensive architecture, expert craftsmanship, or even unexplainable energy sources. Atlantis is also often related to vast wealth and knowledge. It was essentially the Garden of Eden combined with an intellectual paradise. Third, there's usually some sinister reason that the people of Atlantis did not survive. In some myths, the gods punished the Atlanteans for their hubris. In other hypothetical accounts, the Atlanteans did not prepare adequately for natural disasters or internal strife, so their society collapsed. Some theories even say the Atlanteans were actually aliens from outer space or secret godlike beings who didn't want to be found out and intentionally sank their own city. It has even been proposed that Atlantis didn't fall, but rather was hidden by its people and that to this day, the city still exists and operates beyond the scope of public awareness. There's a lot of theory and speculation and really, the only thing we know for sure is this. No one has ever definitively identified the real-life location of Atlantis. It's certainly possible that the city never existed. We don't have any artifacts that are known to be of Atlantean origin. Of course, authentic Atlantean ruins may have been mislabeled and ascribed to different civilizations. Either way, Atlantis and its technological secrets have captured the imagination of its enthusiasts since its story began thousands of years ago. In the more modern era, it has spawned wild ideas from European explorers and even the highest officers of the Nazi party. Was Atlantis ever a real place? Or was it just a story that got out of hand? And if it is real, where is it? Theories on Atlantis's location date all the way back to the first written account of the city around 360 BCE, where it appears in Plato's philosophical text, Timaeus. Actually, Timaeus and the following dialogue of the same trilogy, Critias, are the only primary sources we have relaying the story of Atlantis. They are the basis for the history of the lost city. Plato states that Atlantis had already been lost for 9,000 years. That means the disappearance of Atlantis would have happened between 11 and 12,000 years ago. Those dates place Atlantis in prehistory, 6,000 years before the rise of ancient Egypt, which is considered to be the first ancient empire. Prehistory is typically characterized as being the time before the invention of writing and recorded history. Thus, if Atlantis is real, its technology would be six to 10,000 years ahead of its time. 
That possibility also raises the issue of how we even know about Atlantis, considering it predates historical records and has no definitive material remains. According to Plato, the story was brought up when Greek and Egyptian leaders met to discuss their histories. It's implied, then, that the story of Atlantis came from oral tradition. It's important to note that Plato wasn't just some nobody spinning stories. He was one of the most famous thinkers and writers of Greek antiquity and is still read widely today. Plato's accomplishments include founding the first university in the Western world and extensive writing on topics as broad-ranging as ethics, art, justice, beauty, and the human condition. As far as sources go, he's a pretty dependable one. Plato was particularly famous for recording and expanding upon the work of his equally famous teacher, Socrates. Plato's work typically follows the format where a fictional version of Socrates has a dialogue with someone else in order to arrive at a more complex and specific understanding of a philosophical idea. For example, in Plato's The Allegory of the Cave, Socrates explains that seeing the truth is like seeing light after a lifetime of living in a cave. It's difficult for that person to adjust and for previous peers to understand them. The allegory helps illustrate his more abstract point about human behavior and how our perception informs what we believe to be absolute truth. Timaeus works in a similar fashion. Plato has Socrates ask his guests to reflect on the requirements of a perfect society. For his key example, he uses ancient Athens, and for his counterexample, he uses Atlantis. To re-emphasize, Atlantis is set up to be the bad example in this exercise. Plato introduces Atlantis as follows, quote, For it is related in our records how once upon a time your state stayed the course of a mighty host, which, starting from a distant point in the Atlantic Ocean, was insolently advancing to attack the whole of Europe and Asia to boot. Plato refers to a time in the past when Athenians pushed back a, quote, formidable and insolent foe. That foe was Atlantis, and the Atlanteans were fierce warriors who had set out on a campaign of global conquest. Plato continues, quote, For the ocean there was at that time navigable, for in front of the mouth which you Greeks call, as you say, the pillars of Heracles, there lay an island which was larger than Libya and Asia together, and it was possible for the travelers of that time to cross from it to the other islands, and from the islands to the whole of the continent which encompasses that veritable ocean. Essentially, this was a time before current memory, when the ocean was more easily sailed. This is also the famous quote that places Atlantis near the Pillars of Heracles, an area that is known today as the Strait of Gibraltar. This is the only clear landmark Atlantis was supposed to be near. However, Atlantis wasn't just a single island city. As the account goes on, Plato explains that Atlantis was made up of concentric islands. These were linked by moats and canals, including one main throughway that reached from the outer edges to the center of the island where the capital city was located. Based on a location either in or near the Mediterranean Sea, this would mean Atlantis was reachable from Asia Minor and Europe. 
In addition to showing how travel worked, this regular layout would have supported the superior engineering of the Atlanteans. In ancient Greek belief, control over nature was seen as godlike. People with the technical wherewithal to overcome natural obstacles were seen as being blessed with godly skill. This is in line with the belief that Atlantis was established by the children of the gods, known as demigods. In addition to this godly layout, Plato stated the island was said to be home to precious metals, lush plants, and rare exotic animals. In summary, Atlantis was exceptionally wealthy, well-educated, and capable of conquest. These were all laudable traits, but we know Atlantis was being set up as an example of a failed society in Plato's Timaeus. That failure is in how the society spiraled out of control. Plato writes, quote, now in this island of Atlantis, there existed a confederation of kings of great and marvelous power, which held sway over all the island and over many other islands also and parts of the continent. The text goes on to describe the idyllic nature of Atlantis in good times, virtuous, just kings, abundance and beauty. However, Atlantis had also conquered a huge swath of land, and the kings grew increasingly tempted by their power and fortune. According to Plato, quote, Now one day this power gathered all of itself together and set out to enslave all of the territory inside the strait, including your region and ours, in one fell swoop. The Atlanteans were conquerors who sought to grow their territory unrelentingly. And to the Greeks, that was immoral and punishable. The Athenians rose to meet the Atlanteans and their unjust conquest. The Athenians were also great warriors, but they weren't plunderers. They didn't seek widespread conquest beyond their own borders. Therefore, the Athenians avoided the inherent moral corruption present in a wealthy, powerful society. As a result, the gods were on the side of the Athenians. The Athenians fought back valiantly and, despite setbacks, destroyed the Atlantean army. The surviving Atlanteans retreated back to their homeland, but the gods were not done with them. The Greek writer Critias says of the victorious Greeks, quote, she prevented the enslavement of those not yet enslaved and generously freed all the rest of us who lived within the boundaries of Hercules. The Atlanteans were arrogant, and so the gods sought to punish them. And if you know anything about the ancient Greek gods, you know that their punishments tended to be severe and absolute. After this, we'll discuss the fall of the city. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now, back to our story. Angry with the Atlanteans for their greed, arrogance, and treatment of other cities, the gods decided to punish them by destroying their civilization utterly and completely. Plato describes this destruction as follows in Timaeus. 
Quote, but at a later time, there occurred portentous earthquakes and floods, and one grievous day and night befell them when the whole body of your warriors was swallowed up by the earth, and the island of Atlantis in like manner was swallowed up by the sea and vanished. Wherefore also the ocean at that spot has now become impassable and unsearchable, being blocked up by the shoal mud which the island created as it settled down. Atlantis was lost to the sea, and the landscape of the world was forever changed. The good Athenians, with their just morals, had corrected the situation and were clearly the better society. We know Plato wrote about this scenario. We don't know if it was based on a real society handed down from oral tradition, or if it was intended to be an allegory, and therefore made up to illustrate his point. The cave in Allegory of the Cave, for example, is generally understood to be purely illustrative. It's about people chained to a cave who have never seen the light and instead only see shadows. As a result, they think the shadows are real. Then someone leaves the cave and discovers sunlight for the first time. However, when they try to tell the other cave dwellers the truth, they are seen as crazy. The cave is a metaphor. Plato was famous for using these hypothetical setups to explain a complex piece of the human condition. In the case of the cave, he was showing the way rational humans can completely reject the truth. So one could make the argument that Atlantis, like the cave, is purely metaphorical. After all, it's not like anyone is looking for the specific cave that Plato wrote about. So why should anyone look for Atlantis? The key difference is that Plato provided specific details about the civilization and geography of Atlantis. It didn't make sense that Plato would write out so much context for a hypothetical city. Later scholars noted that Plato provided so much information about Atlantis that it had to be real. But it would be centuries before scholars started connecting the Atlantis in Plato's writings with a potentially real location. Historical records show that Plato's Timaeus was read by scholars and philosophers pretty much from the time of its writing onward. But for about a thousand years, Plato's account of Atlantis was typically interpreted as an allegory. By the year 1000, as Europe was amidst the Dark Ages and literacy was a lesser societal priority, Discussion of Plato or Timaeus had become rare. The cultural revolution of the Renaissance, which began in the 1300s, ushered in a new era of global trade and exploration. Europeans became interested in the world beyond their own borders. In 1492, Columbus reached the Americas for the first time. Other expeditions navigated the African coast and eventually made it to India and East Asia. These explorers brought back foodstuffs, relics, and documents from exotic far-off cultures. Public interest in the broader world at large grew, and along with it, interest in legends and secret societies grew as well. This was the era where stories of unicorns became popular alongside tales of mythical islands. There was also a growing middle class and more people who were reading and writing. This meant more people were familiar with Timaeus, either directly or through other authors' references. With growing sea exploration coupled with the so-called discovery of new peoples and places, 
Europeans began to suspect they might find Atlantis out on the open seas. In this case, they began to theorize that Atlantis wasn't just an island or even a series of interconnected islands, but a whole continent. Plato had referred to Atlantis as a continent, and he had said that this continent was located beyond the Strait of Gibraltar. That meant the island could really be anywhere outside the Mediterranean. The idea of continental drift, which grew popular in the 16th and 17th centuries, also supported the theory of Atlantis being isolated in the ocean. This theory stated that over millions of years, the land masses of the Earth slowly drifted apart from one another. So Atlantis may have been founded when it was closer to other continents, but now, after millennia, it was more isolated. In the 1596 book, Thesaurus Geographicus, the Flemish cartographer Abraham Ortelius wrote, quote, unless it be a fable, the island of what is known as Cadiz today will be the remaining part of the island of Atlantis or America, which was not sunk, as Plato reports in the Timaeus, so much as torn away from Europe and Africa by earthquakes and flood. The traces of the ruptures are shown by the projections of Europe and Africa and the indentations of America in the parts of the coasts. Ortelius wasn't 100% sure Atlantis wasn't a myth, but he felt that it could be found and proven to be real. This idea took hold in some interesting ways. An entire school of theorists decided Atlantis was actually right under explorers' noses. They believed that Atlantis was, in fact, the American supercontinent. After all, America was a landmass across the Atlantic Ocean from Europe, and it was occupied by a seemingly ancient civilization. Spanish historian Francisco Lopez de Gomora was the first person to claim that Plato was referring specifically to the Americas. Lopez de Gomara was not the most reputable source, but he was a widely read one. He was famous for writing an account of the conquistador Hernán Cortés's conquest of the Americas, though that account was widely criticized for inaccuracies. Cortés's official reporter, Bernal Díaz del Castillo, said López de Gómara's account was thoroughly incorrect, and a side-by-side -side reading of the two men's writings shows dozens of discrepancies. That did not deter readers, and as a result of good storytelling, López de Gómara's accounts of both the Americas and Atlantis were taken as fact for a long time. There was a lot of Eurocentric bias in early descriptions of the New World and the people who lived there. It was hard to tell what was just plain wrong and what had been interpreted incorrectly. For example, many sources mixed up local ethnic groups, such as the Maya and the Aztec, or combined them into a single group, when in fact, Mexico alone had at least a dozen ethnic groups. Additionally, the Spanish propagated a false narrative about the history of Mayan culture. The early conquistadors wrote out the history of the Mayan civilization without consulting any actual Mayans. This led to a global perception of the Mayan culture that was a chaotic mesh of fact and fiction. There wasn't much clarity or fact-checking in what people were starting to accept as factual observation. Thus, the muddled legacy of the Mayans became associated with the equally unclear legend of Atlantis. 
It wasn't just works of historical and geographic knowledge that were trying to explain the Atlantis legend. Fiction writers in the mid-1600s became deeply interested in the idea of Atlantis, which they often set in the Americas. In Sir Thomas More's 16th century work, Utopia, the English author and humanist described a fictional place located in the New World. He was directly inspired by Plato's work and accounts of the Americas. However, Moore did not think Atlantis was real. He was actually the first person to coin the term utopia, which literally means no place. It was meant to be a pun on the Greek word utopos, which means good place. A utopia came to be understood as a place that was both good and that could not exist in the flawed real world. The point of this pun was to question whether a perfect place could exist, or if it should. Moore's entire book was a satire on corruption in Europe. In his view, the Europeans were as bad as Plato's corrupt Atlanteans. He was, like Plato, using an allegory. Contrary to his goal of showing utopias couldn't exist, Moore's work reinforced a theorized connection between the Americas and Atlantis. This fictional exercise inspired others. In 1627, Sir Francis Bacon published a work called New Atlantis. Drawing from Plato as well as Christian sources for ideal human behavior, Bacon set forth his own idea of what a modern Atlantis would look like and set it, once again, in the New World. The civilization he described was entirely fictional and actually called Bensalem. It was an island society that Bacon described as still existing. Moore and Bacon both framed Atlantis as an idea. The utopian concept was intended to be a thought exercise, but their works caught on with other writers and scholars who started to consider that a literal Atlantis existed, and this belief quickly conflated with Mayanism. Mayanism was a pseudo-history built on mysticism, the occult, and a belief in Eurocentrism to try and explain the mysteries of the world. Recall that the Spanish didn't put much work into fact-checking their accounts of the Mayan history when they wrote down their reports to send back to Europe. Those inaccuracies and false references to mysticism eventually led to Mayanism, the belief that the Mayans were entwined with some higher power. Followers of Mayanism looked at Mayan ruins and assumed that native peoples couldn't have built them. Instead, magic and ancient, potentially godlike people had to be involved. They quickly moved to try to prove this theory. This rejection of actual history wasn't unique to practitioners of Mayanism. Due to the racist beliefs of the time, many 17th century scholars believed that the indigenous peoples of the Americas could not have built the incredible structures that we know today are Mayan, Aztec, Toltec, and other native Latin American cultural ruins. As a result, one of the theories of the time stated that Mayan city ruins were actually the remains of Atlantis, because it made more sense to these historians that the structures had been made by gods rather than the non-white natives. This view was not unique to the New World. Historic scholars also believed that African people could not have built the pyramids and other archaeological wonders of ancient Egypt. 
This damaging thinking has led to systemic oppression of non-white peoples and a lack of understanding of real history. There are still, to this day, unsolved mysteries about the ruins in Mexico and Central America. Like in the ruins of ancient Egypt, some of the technology is strangely advanced for its time period. The Maya were the only local group to have a robust written language, for example. Advanced technology is also a key characteristic of Atlantis. There were also countless heavy materials moved impossible distances with no advanced systems. So far, scholars have not been able to explain all of these movements. Finally, several of the ancient civilizations in the area dried up and left ruins behind with no explanation for their downfall, a pattern that fits with the Atlantis myth. Mexico wasn't the only possible location for Atlantis, though. According to the continental drift theory, Atlantis could have been anywhere along the spots where the South American continent used to connect to Europe. Enthusiasts continued to search throughout the 17th and early 18th centuries, with various groups claiming they'd found Atlantis anytime new ruins showed up. Meanwhile, back in Europe, the city of Pompeii was discovered in 1748. Pompeii was famously destroyed around 79 CE by a volcanic explosion from Mount Vesuvius that completely buried the city, preserving it until its discovery 1,700 years later. Much like Atlantis, Pompeii was a vast city that was completely overcome by a natural disaster. For some, the discovery of Pompeii was proof that other ancient cities may be out there. Atlantis could be real and undiscovered. However, as the New World fervor died down and no ruins were proven to be Atlantis, the Atlantean myth once again went dormant for another two centuries. But at the end of the 1800s, increased global interest in archaeology led people back to the search for Atlantis. The modern fascination with Atlantis owes its origins specifically to the 1882 publication Atlantis, the Antediluvian World by Ignatius Donnelly, an American politician and self-proclaimed scholar. Donnelly was directly inspired by Mayanism, which we discussed before. Donnelly took Plato's original account of Atlantis as entirely factual and believed that all ancient cultures descended from this original lost civilization. That would include the Greeks and Egyptians, but also the Maya. In fact, Donnelly based much of his theory on the fieldwork of Mayanism proponent Augustus Le Plongeau. Augustus's ideas are considered problematic at best by modern scholars. He did not follow contemporary methods for archaeology or anthropology and largely filled in information based on his own mystical beliefs as opposed to any real research. Still, he was one of the first researchers to take and circulate photographs of Mayan ruins in Europe and the United States. As a result, his work became very popular and influential. Donnelly was inspired by another French Mayanism practitioner, Charles-Étienne Brasseur de Barbeau. In addition to fieldwork, de Barbeau actively promoted the idea that Mayan ruins were actually connected to Atlantis. 
Donnelly felt this connection supported the idea that the Atlanteans had technology much beyond their time and that the civilization had fallen due to a civil war between good and evil, with only a few survivors escaping. Donnelly's theories caught fire with mystic and Mayanism enthusiasts and spread successfully in part due to Helena Blavatsky. Blavatsky was a Russian occultist, though she later worked in New York City where she founded the Theosophical Society. This society's goal was to study old religions and reach a deeper understanding of the overlap between science, religion, and philosophy. Thus, Blavatsky became obsessed with the so-called true history of the world. Blavatsky was deeply influenced by Indian religious texts. She believed that these texts revealed seven root races of humanity, which stemmed from different periods of human success. According to Blavatsky, the Atlanteans were the fifth root race. They were a superior, semi-godlike group of people with incredible culture and technology. They had superior psychic abilities and were also two or three times larger than normal humans. Blavatsky believed that all human achievement was only made possible because we are descended from Atlanteans. This idea soon attracted the attention of one of the most powerful groups of the 20th century, the Nazis. We'll look into the 20th century search for Atlantis when we come back. And now, back to our story. In 1875, Helena Blavatsky founded the Theosophical Society in New York City with the goal of linking modern humanity with our ancient ancestors. Within the year, she and several other founders moved to India to study Eastern religions and flush out their theories on human history. They sent this information back to society headquarters in the U.S. and Europe. Blavatsky's theories became incredibly popular all over Europe, especially among the educated elite. They directly influenced a young professor who would change the search for Atlantis forever. Hermann Wirth was a Dutch-German theologian who specialized in ancient religions and symbols. Much like Blavatsky, he was interested in secret occult explanations of history. He studied religious and historical documents to try to uncover supposedly lost ideas about our species' past. Verth believed in a single proto-language that linked all religions and cultures, which he theorized showed up in places like cave paintings, common pictographic letters, and language similarities all over the world. And if there was a single proto-language, there had to be a single proto-culture that was the root of all humanity. According to Verth, that route was Atlantis. In the early 1930s, Wirth gave a presentation at the University of Berlin about the ancient Atlantean root race whose island home had been engulfed by water. He took this idea directly from Plato, but believed Plato had been wrong on the location and reason that Atlantis sank. In Wirth's version, a large celestial body, something like a meteor, had hit and sunk Atlantis. This was a direct parallel to Plato's explanation of God sinking the island, but with a supposedly more scientific reason. Wirth believed Atlantis was located in the Arctic, not the Mediterranean. When this meteor hit Earth and destroyed the civilization, 
the few survivors moved south and intermingled with humans to produce a Nordic root race of light-haired, blue-eyed people. According to Verth, these people supposedly spread to Europe, where their quote-unquote master culture spread to the rest of the world. Verth's theory was exceedingly Eurocentric, to put it mildly. It basically explained that all human culture could be traced back to this European root. One man who attended Verth's lecture was Heinrich Himmler. Himmler was a major player in the Nazi party. He was Hitler's right-hand man and arguably the single most influential architect of the Holocaust. He was also obsessed with the occult. Like other Nazis, Himmler believed in the problematic theory of the light-haired, blue-eyed root race that was supposedly the root of European heritage and superior to all other groups. But instead of Atlantean, he preferred the term Aryan. To further this theory, Nazis had already claimed that important cultural figures were Aryan. For example, they insisted that Jesus was not Jewish or even Middle Eastern but in fact Aryan, and therefore part of a pure European ancestry. Nazis were also known to take what they considered sacred art, such as masterworks by Leonardo da Vinci or other famous painters, to construct their own history of the Aryan world. The problem was no one had ever found any proof of this ancient race that wasn't already incorporated into another culture. Ancient empires like Egypt or Mesopotamia left behind troves of artifacts to prove that they had once existed. But Atlantis, and by extension Himmler's Aryans, left behind no such traces. No temples, no relics, no ruins. In need of physical proof, Himmler sought to find Atlantis and prove this theory once and for all, so that the rest of the world would finally fall in line and accept the arrogant Nazi belief in a master race. Himmler was also actively looking for other mystical relics like the Holy Grail and the Ark of the Covenant to prove Aryan superiority any way he could. Himmler started a shadow organization in 1935 called the Ananerbe, or Ancestral Heritage, to seek out occult objects. If that sounds like something out of Indiana Jones, it's because the character was actually based on Nazi treasure hunters and occultists. Himmler immediately appointed Wirth as the co-founder of Ancestral Heritage and gave him substantial funding and support to seek out the ruins of Atlantis. According to Wirth, those groups most closely linked to the original Atlanteans had fled to the high places of the earth to avoid ever having their civilizations sunk again. This meant that Verth's main contender for other present-day descendants of the Atlantis master race were Tibetans, who lived in the high reaches of the Himalayan mountains. Verth believed that due to their remote location, they would be the closest to the original Atlantean gene pool. Himmler was completely on board, and in 1938, he funded Wirth and a team of five to go on a research expedition to the Himalayas. The Nazis weren't putting all their eggs in one basket, though. In 1938, they also sent expeditions to Iceland, Scotland, Sweden, and France to find clues linking the Aryan race back to the true religion, and hopefully to Atlantis. 
One of the members of Verth's Himalaya expedition team was 26-year-old Bruno Bigar, a so-called racial heritage specialist who used skull measurements to determine ancestry. This was part of a holdover 19th century belief that certain facial features could show certain traits about a person. Generally speaking, more traditionally European features were associated with good people. The Nazis had an idea of what an ideal Atlantean should look like, and it was Bigar's job to take the measurements to prove whether Tibetans shared that heritage or not. In April of 1938, the team spent two weeks in Tibet trying to get measurements of local people's heads. They got plenty of measurements, but unsurprisingly, they had difficulty finding a blonde-haired, blue-eyed specimen in Tibet. After two weeks, the team had found nothing to indicate that Tibet held the secret to finding Atlantis. The team returned to Germany, and Wirth maintained that his theory was right. He had just gotten the location wrong. Atlanteans weren't in Tibet, but they were somewhere, and Wirth intended to find them. However, as Germany became more and more aggressive in the lead-up to World War II, it became increasingly difficult for small German expedition teams to gain entry to foreign countries. Furthermore, as the war went on, German resources were diverted to the war effort, and smaller expeditions started to lose their funding. As a result, Wirth was never able to prove his theory. Himmler was captured at the end of the war in 1945. He took his own life by eating a cyanide pill. The Third Reich's interest in finding the truth behind Atlantis and the connection between Atlanteans and Aryans died with him. But there was still interest in finding Atlantis, or what was left of it, through the rest of the 20th century. In the 1960s, the growing field of study into plate tectonics led to a number of searches for Atlantis along ocean fault lines and other geologically tumultuous areas. As scientists come to better understand geological phenomena, the theories that Atlantis was claimed by some natural disaster have increased. Mid-century interest in extraterrestrial life has led some people to believe the citizens of Atlantis may have even been aliens. Increasing satellite, submarine, and computer technology has led to additional searches, including the Merlin Burroughs expedition from summer 2018. And yet, Atlantis continues to evade all efforts to find it. Is Atlantis still out there, waiting to be discovered? Or did it never really exist in the first place? Next week, we'll take a look at the most likely theories on what's fiction and what's fact on the Atlanteans, as well as the most likely real-life location of Atlantis. And finally, we'll take a look at why this 2,500-year-old story about a 12,000-year-old society has been so popular for so long. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back Thursday with part two of The Lost City of Atlantis. You can find more episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. Now, if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. 
And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode was written by Taylor Cleland and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>